right now at Honda, find your kind of value with a low finance rate offer on selected Civic hatch and sedan models. There's never been a better time to get into a Civic. So talk to your local dealer and let's help you into a Honda today. T's and C's apply. Ends August 31st. See website for details. You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. You're listening to the Batuta Advocate News Hour with Errol Parker and myself, Clancy Overall. Again, for those of you listening outside the Diamantina Shire, this is episode number 15 of the podcast. We hope you are enjoying our transition to the world of new media. Yes, and a big aloha to everyone out there. Thank you for joining us for another show where we wrap up the week in news and have a chat with another notable Australian person. This week, we do have a controversial media figure stopping by for a conversation with us. She's never far from the headlines and she's always stirring people up, so we thought we might try and grab hold of her to find out where it all comes from. We will, of course, be speaking to Miranda Devine, the News Corp, Sky News, and 2GB commentator, who's got some interesting takes on the world and the Australian news cycle, as many of you at home may be aware of. Yeah, she certainly doesn't mind kicking the hornet's nest on a regular basis, does she, Clancy? But first, uh, we better wrap up what's been happening around town this week. We should. And old Mr. Lim has caused quite a commotion down in the quiet suburb of Batuta Ponds this week. Yes, Mr. Lim is always known for his ability to stir shit and kick hornet's nests. Uh, The leafy cul-de-sac retirement hub uh, down there in Batuta Ponds has been rocked by allegations that Graham Lynn has absconded from town with a large amount of money owing to a large number of residents. Yes, Graham Lim, who's made headlines before in town, has actually been taking money from a number of residents in the ponds for some years and putting it into a lottery pool. A lot of them are involved in down there in the bridge clubs and the CWA, that part of town. Yeah, you've heard this type of thing happen before, haven't you? Well, as it would seem, some of our senior citizens last week got lucky in the lottery. Uh, they hit the jackpot after years of perseverance and throwing money into a, into a black hole. That is gambling. Uh, the reports are that they were all celebrating and talking about what each of them was going to do with their share of the winnings down at the Citizens Club uh, the, the next morning. It actually was. It started uh, as quite a feel-good story. At least that's what we thought, until no one could track down Graham, who disappeared from town Wednesday morning and hasn't been seen since. Well, two and a half million Australian pesos is a lot of money, and I have a sneaking suspicion... Clancy, that Mr. Lim might not be coming back to town. But we do have our crack reporters on his trail, and we're trying to track him down and figure out exactly what's happened. Uh, so we'll try to keep you updated as it all unfolds. And on to other news, local construction baron Phil Anderson is in trouble again. The owner-operator of Angry Ando's demolition could be on the hook for quite a bit this time after being caught illegally dumping what looked like building waste that was visually similar to honeycomb. I'm not a particularly pious man myself, Clancy, but I do know what the Lord says. And he says he can't help those who can't help themselves. And after a few slaps on the wrists, I'm not sure anyone else can help Phil this time around either. Well, you are begging for trouble when you leave a load of asbestos-riddled rubble on a property just outside of the golf course estate, only a few hundred metres from Eileen's childcare centre. Yeah, well, to his credit, he did try to do it in the middle of the night, but Eileen and her husband were awoken by their dogs barking and caught him red-handed. He did try and pressure her into deleting the footage she filmed on her phone, but to no avail. And he's going to have to front up in a couple of weeks and offer a bit of mea culpa to the judge. However, given his checkered history, I think he might be going on a little holiday to the South Batuta Correctional Facility. 
I wouldn't really call it a holiday myself. I'd call it some time to reflect on all the horrible things that he has done. Anyway, Phil, if you're listening, probably not. Uh, see you in hell. But I don't think we should dwell on this issue any longer because, you know, it's all before the courts and he needs a fair trial and we'd just like to see how it plays out. In some better news, young Dale Simpson has made the cut with the Redcliffe Dolphins, a local Batuta boy on the on the state stage of rugby league. Yeah, the young fella who's been quite impressive both on and off the field for our very own Batuta Dolphins for a long time has been offered a match fee contract down in the big smoke and should head down this week to get things started. He has been putting on some barnstorming performances on the pitch, but the scouts were really impressed with the two full-sleeve tattoos he picked up recently and his potential to play up off the field. The scouts told us during the week that he has got all the hallmarks of a great leaguey, and they've got high hopes for him. So good on you, Dale. Do the town proud. Yes, great stuff, Dale. And remember, stay away from those pokies. They will suck you in, and they will hold you up by the ankles and shake every last coin out of your pockets. Now, we've kept her sitting here for a little while, and we're going to have to keep her here sitting for a little while longer uh, because we do need to get these mentions out, and here's a deal from Koala we've got going on at the moment. Yes, we are contractually obliged here at Desert Rock FM to spruik these sort of things, and our poor old producer Murray copped a spray last time we missed out from the big wigs at the station. So here it is. For Koala mattresses, $200 off. Use the code STRUTH200 when ordering online. That's for uh, Koala Sofa or Koala Mattress uh, whenever you place an order online. There you go. Happy Murray. All right, let's get into this chat with our guest. Yes. Well, here we are with Miranda Devine, the um, iconic uh, conservative commentator. Yep. Um, quite often controversial commentator. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Very great pleasure to be with you both. So, you've come a long way from your humble, very humble beginnings in America. That's uh, <laughs> that's where you entered this world, and I believe you uh, first cut your teeth in journalism. That's right. I was born in Jamaica, Queens, which is Donald Trump territory. So fifty yep. cent as well. Yep, that's where fifty cent was from. from. Yep. All the best people are from Queens, and uh, so. But I was really only there under false pretenses because my parents were uh, journalists, and uh, my dad from New Zealand, my mother from Australia. So, but if you're born in America, you get to be. A citizen, so... So you've got the passport still? Mm. And I could even be president. You weren't a dreamer. <laughs> what? No, no. Well, no. maybe I am a kind of a dreamer, exactly. Uh, anyway, I, I am a citizen. And um, so, and then we lived in Tokyo for a long time. And my parents both being journalists, I loved what they did. I loved the idea of journalism, loved writing, and always wanted to be a journalist. So, so what type of journalists were they? Um, so my father was a um, foreign correspondent for the Herald and Weekly Times back when. And then, um, look, in, in, when we were in Australia, he worked for um, the Reader's Digest. He was editor of the Australasia uh, edition. And then he went to back to New York um, eventually to become an editor over there in um, Pleasantville um, in Westchester County. And that's where my sisters kind of grew up. And then... Um, then he came, then he went to then he started working for Rupert Murdoch and went to Chicago to edit a newspaper and then again to New York. Now Miranda, just there, uh, it's probably as good a time any to bring up uh, your uh, international upbringing. Uh, that might come as a surprise to many of our listeners, given the fact that you so often present yourself with um, a strong anti-immigration stance um, and you are a known anti-multiculturalist. 
I've never been anti-immigration at all. Um, Look, and I'm not anti-multicultural in the sense that Australia is a multicultural country and America is, but I'm anti-multiculturalism, which is the idea that instead of people coming from all over the world to Australia or to America and becoming Australian or American, they retain the the identity of the place they came from and and they don't integrate and they don't make the country better because they make it more divided. So I think the multicultural industry was working against what was actually happening organically in Australia and uh, and and I think people that was sort of the perhaps the forerunner of identity politics and and people were using uh, you know, immigrant groups for their own political purposes. When do you think the multicultural um, experiment in Australia stopped working? Do you think it was Cabramatta or do you think it was Sunnybank or do you think it was Lakemba? Where, 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 where would you say? Because, you know, going back, you could have people could have said these same things and I'm sure they did during the Greek migration waves to South Brisbane and, uh, you know, certain parts of Sydney and Melbourne. Do you think, was it working then and did it stop at any point? Look, I mean, the immigrant story of Australia has never not worked. Um, The problem comes when you have ghettos of people, of migrants who live in particular areas uh, and, and, you know, speak don't speak English, um, ghettoise their cultures and don't integrate. Um, and I, I don't think Cabramatta was a problem of multiculturalism any more than I think the crime wave in Melbourne currently is a problem of multiculturalism. That's a policing problem. You hear a lot of people complain and saying it's the Sudanese in Melbourne who are running riot and causing all the violent crime uptick. But really, that is a failure of policing. And in New South Wales, we had a similar failure 20 years ago in Cabramatta uh, with the heroin epidemic and the huge amount of um, property crime that came from that. And that was because we had a crappy police force and a terrible police minister and a terrible police commissioner and thanks to I would say uh, a lot of thanks was due to the Daily Telegraph which really waged a campaign um, about crime and and as a result the both the commissioner and the minister were gone and particularly it was through a whistleblower policeman called Tim Priest. So now we have a fantastic police commissioner and our crime rate is the lowest it's been you know it's, I think it's a, at a record low at least it's the lowest in several decades and so it's nothing to do really with multiculturalism. I don't think you can say that crime is caused by a particular race. Just going back to that Telegraph campaign you spoke of, what were the Fairfax papers writing about the migrant crime wave at the time? Were they as tense as the Murdoch papers or were they writing with a little bit less excitement? Yeah, uh, look, I would imagine they were. Um, and I'm sure that... Um, look, I ended up going and working for Fairfax and yeah. I was their token... Um, sort of conservative or one of their few conservative columnists and they specifically um, hired me from the Telegraph to to sort of satisfy their part of their audience that actually was um, was conservative. Yeah. Um, and so, sure, that I, look, I, I got a, a view inside the belly of the left-wing beast when I was there. <laughs> yep. So you, you don't think you'll ever end up at the ABC then? Just by... Uh... <laughs> Just by the way things are heading? I don't think so. Although I do occasionally go on the drum with Julia Baird, who was my editor when I was back at the Herald and is a decent person. There there are decent people who work there. But I I, I imagine the ABC, from what I see of it, it's like the Herald was. It's not 
individuals who are particularly corrupting um, or particularly far left wing. It's just a culture that um, that has its own. It's sort of a. It is really a beast. It has its own mind, and it doesn't matter who the editors are and who you put on the ABC board and who you make the managing director or the editor in chief of the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, there is the culture is impossible to get control of because it's been left wing and um, sort of subversive forever. Now, as someone who I imagine lives in Sydney. Yes. Um, and I imagine, you know, you're in media and you have uh, probably friends that um, – I, I, I can only imagine you have friends that over a glass of red um, start bringing out, um, you know, a lot of those kind of detached but left-wing attitudes that you write about so much. Does that happen or you only surround yourself with, with – like how, how do you deal with this on a social level? Because that's where these um, – these, a lot of left-wing kind of um, strongholds are nowadays in the city. Yeah, they're essentially just echo chambers now, aren't they? Yeah, I guess. Look, a lot of my friends aren't political and um, so... Lucky you. <laughs> so we don't, you know, we don't talk about... A lot of my best girlfriends, we just don't talk about politics. And um, those who are, you know, you, I just I just pretty much keep my mouth shut. They, and, and also they would know, a lot of them wouldn't, wouldn't even read my columns, but um, they would know, those who are left-wing know that we disagree. So just to remain friends, we don't really address hmm. topics that are that are um, like that. And look, I've got friends in journalism who are very political and who are left-wing and we sort of, we I guess what we do is we just talk, we, we pretty much range around things where we agree and when we come to topics that we both know that we don't agree on them, or in, it was usually in a group. Um, we're diplomatic. I'm always diplomatic. I will never thrust my um, opinions down people's throats. And in fact, my friends say to me, "It's so strange that you do what you do because uh, you know you you you're not really very opinionated." Yeah. So in print, it's a different. Yeah. Um, and I think because you have to, you can't really sit on a fence. Most issues are. They're, you know, they're not really black and white. Most issues, there's grey areas and decent, rational people sort of discuss them in a reasonable way. But when you're writing a column, it's a one-sided conversation and you have to be very, um, you know, you have to gather information and you have to be strong in your opinion or otherwise, um, you you know, you don't, you don't have a job. You can't really sit on a fence doing my job. So your love of research and well-thought-out arguments be the reason you had to quit your first job? At the well-known agenda-driven CSIRO. Um, yeah. Look, I I never particularly wanted to do science. I I always wanted to do journalism, and but my parents, both being in journalism, tried to convince me not to do it. And um, I and I'd done. I did my first year um, in architecture at Sydney, and was at college, and just I was a bit young and silly and so I never really went to my lectures and kind of failed and so I had to ring my parents from college and they'd spent a fortune putting me in through college for a year and they were living in America at that stage and I had to ring them up and give them some um, forewarning that I was going to you know have failed all my exams and um, so I thought well I better find a job so I looked in the paper and I found a job at the CSIRO and uh, and my mother was from a farm in Western Australia and loved the CSIRO because of myxomatosis and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, she so I rang them up and I said well the good news and the bad news and told them I had this great job 
and that CSIRO was going to put me through university. And of course, because it was a science place, uh, I did a science degree. And I majored in maths because it was the shortest amount of hours that you had to do face-to-face at uni. So (laughs) there you are. I'm a mathematician. Now, we've just interrupted this podcast quickly to remind you on behalf of our sponsors that you can get $200 off your next mattress or sofa at Koala when you enter the code STRUTH200 at the online checkout. That's S-T-R-U-T-H 200. STRUTH 200 listeners, I've got one. They're fantastic. Now, we better get back to the conversation. So, Miranda, you were an employee at the uh, CSIRO at a time when you know a government organisation would be able to put their the younger employees through university was this in that brief kind of era that we often hear about uh, where, you know, tertiary education was free because we know a lot of the uh, biggest supporters of increases in university fees are people that actually didn't, uh, didn't have to pay for university themselves. What era, what era was this? That was the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, um, it not, when I say put through, they gave me time off to, um, to go to uni. So I I can't remember. I think I got like eight hours a week to go, to go to my lectures. But you know, people, I mean, my kids, my, my, uh, oldest son went to uni and, and, you know, he hexed it Mm -hmm. and he's, he has a job now and he's paying it off. But you know, that's not a burden. You don't have to pay it back until you get a job. So it's still, Effectively free, even though you, have, you you end up with the, with um, a burden of um, of debt to pay, it's still you're not. It's not that it's stopping that the cost of education is stopping people from going yeah. to university. No, not like it is in America for, for many exactly. People, yeah. yeah. Now with with that, uh, you know, uh, you've wor- you've been through and worked with the CSIRO. Where uh, where do you stand with um, climate change right now? Because they. They're having a hard time, CSIRO, and obviously there's a lot of conspiracies going around as to to why they're being kind of discounted um, um, and, and not as respected as they much as much as they were, I guess, when your you know your mother was um, yeah. right on them and, and, and a big fan. Um, what's your kind of relationship there? How do you how do you feel about uh, climate change? Well, because I did maths and I understood how you actually build mathematical models and and we had a saying then which was gigo garbage in garbage out and uh, so a model and the climate models are only as good as the assumptions you make and the data that you put into it so I uh, you know unlike a lot of other journalists who don't understand how they work I didn't have this kind of um, religious belief in the science as if it was unimpeachable and perfect and you just had to believe everything that happened. And, you know, the, the, there's, no, there's no absolutes in science and I always mistrust anyone who says that they know for sure they, that, uh, you know, the, the, that global warming is occurring because of X amount of human intervention. I mean, obviously, I believe in climate change. I don't think anyone doesn't because it occurs. It's just natural. And I do, you know, I think there's enough evidence to say that human intervention, human actions um, have added to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But I don't, I think the jury's out on um, how much that is and, and how it compares to, say, a volcanic eruption or bushfires or uh, sunspots. You know, there's so many variables that I don't think you can say, you know, with too much clarity, um, uh, you know, make these predictions, these dire predictions of apocalypse and sea rises and all the other garbage that we're hearing. It's more a – science has been so polluted and politicised by – 
the whole climate change argument, I think it's really damaging. And what are we going to do anyway? We, you know, to stop um, spewing out greenhouse gases, are we meant to go back into the caves and not have any electricity? And, and you know, the best thing to do, I think the best scientists, really, or the most credible scientists in my view, just say that we should be um, trying to adapt to yep. a changing environment and rather than try, you know, trying to throw ourselves back into the dark ages. So um, just another thing I'd like to cover just before we let you go is um, there's one thing that we've found with our unique brand of, of, <laughs> of regional journalism is that if you do have a, a controversial opinion, there's going to be someone out there who's not going to like it. And you've got everyone from, from Andrew Bolt to, to Clementine Ford you know, they're always having to wake up and go through their inbox and <laughs> and sort of go through all the nice things and all the mean things that people are saying. Uh, we get a few. Yeah. We, we get a bit of... Um, yeah. <laughs> we have a few who would like to see our head on a pike on the story bridge. That was the last one I think we got. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But so anyway... they can see we, us um, when they come through from New Farm. But um, <laughs> it'd be safe to say that you often get some too. How do you deal with these uh, these the, these people? Well, look, I mean, I guess I've been doing it so long I've got a bit of a thick skin now. Um, A lot of it comes through social media now. So my big motto with Twitter is you just block, just block and move on. And I treat it like weeding a garden. You know, Twitter can be quite a nice place. It can be a sewer, but it can be quite nice as long as you keep your garden weeded. And so I block people who are stupid, who are abusive, whatever. Um, And then, look, there, there are uh, recently. It used to be just lefties who attacked me and um, sort of feminists like Clementine Ford, but or trolls like like who who kind like, of like Mark Latham. <laughs> no, Mark Latham and I are actually on good terms at the moment. Um, but I think the worst people for me have been conservatives who've attacked me. The the sort of Abbott the feral Abbott jihadis right. who, because I haven't supported his jihad against the government, yeah. um, are now calling me a lefty. So yeah. I'm getting it mm. from both sides. So I don't know. I, you just you just um, laugh at it, I think. Well, that was going to be my next question because you don't often feel comfortable asking this question of people, but given your career and, and what you do for work, who would you like to be Prime Minister and who do you vote for? Uh, well... I mean, I don't think we have much of a choice, you know. There's Malcolm Turnbull or there's Bill Shorten. And I know, uh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull might not be entirely my cup of tea, but I think he's doing an okay job and the government's doing a pretty good job. And I think Bill Shorten would be shocking. So it's pretty easy. What about Peter Dutton? Would you prefer him over them all? Not really. I don't mind Peter Dutton, but um, he's, you know, he's doing a great job. But I think it's very different being minister for... Um, border Protection Minister for Immigration or whatever he is now, Border Security. It's a lot easier doing that than it is to be yeah. Prime Minister. Everyone th- seems fabulous until they're in the hot seat. Although I'm not sure there'd be too many people on the, the left or the right who would vote for a person who's held a radar gun on the Bruce Highway before and I know that he's been doing that for a long time in his past. <laughs> was he a highway patrol? Yeah, highway cop. Very early oh, no, he, he could he never vote copper. for him. Oh, Super no, troopers. No, no, terrible. No, <laughs> no, no, he's out. Now, we got to, We want to ask, uh, as, as you might notice, um, because, uh, you know, this is the state of media at the moment, and, uh, there's only a few newspapers left in the country, including ours, that, uh, you know, is willing to bring young people through. 
Uh, there's a lot of young people, you know, going out to study uh, journalism, which essentially started as a cadet once upon a time, mm. a cadet program. Now it's a professionalized industry where you get a degree and you've got to go to a university and they'll probably only hire you if you go to a sandstone university and you end up uh, writing, you know, listicles um, on an <laughs> online website and you're not really doing what, what everyone's – like there's no, there's no real opportunity uh, for people coming through. Do you reckon – that there'll be people that are able to have a career like the one you've had in 20, 30 years' time? Yeah, for sure. I, I think there's more opportunity now for young people in journalism than ever because the whole industry is going through a revolution and, you know, the, the young people are going to be more um, adept with all forms of all platforms and so that's what that's what news organizations are looking for and newspapers like ours are turning into you know we're doing video we're doing audio we're doing radio we're doing podcasts we're doing television um and and television stations are sort of becoming newspapers in a way they're writing stories online so young people are going to be versatile and i would suggest don't go to journalism school Go and do a, a yeah. degree in something else to furnish your brain. Go and do, um, you know, go and do an arts degree, or and and don't go to a sandstone university. Go and do agriculture or something. Do something real, and um, which is not an arts degree, I guess, but a liberal arts degree, and and then you know you won't your brain won't be polluted. Really, it's you just need curiosity. Um, you need a few skills. Um, you know, who, what, why, where, when, and those sorts of things you can learn on the job. But the smartest, there's so many smart young people now that I see in our newsroom and uh, and they are masters of everything. They can do, um, you know, produce a, a, a radio show. They can write for online. Um, they can go out and interview people. And it's just an exciting, fun place to be. And I think newspapers for a while got very boring and stayed and there were just a few old people left and very poorly paid um, youngsters. But now uh, the world's your oyster. So get into this fantastic, exciting profession. Well, it seems in this world of ever-popular fake news paired with the failings of real news companies, it seems the Australian and, and the Telegraph are the only few papers in this country that have an active paywall which renders... It of no interest to anyone that isn't particularly rusted on to its core. Do you think that young people are ever going to get to the point where they realise that they're going to have to pay for news? Well, they'll have to, I think, because it's the only way we survive. Um, and that that's sort of... We, we've been riding this internet storm for quite a few years and at first everyone just just gave their stuff away for free and then our advertising disappeared and Google and Facebook has sucked up most of it in Australia. And so if you're going to have newspapers and you're going to have any kind of journalism, whether it's you know online, newspapers, whatever platform it is, you have to pay for it. And people, amazingly, the Daily Telegraph, for instance, we didn't really realise that. We thought it was just the sort of highbrow papers, the Wall Street journals, the Australian and so on. On, um, the so-called broadsheets, what used to be broadsheets, that could actually charge for their content. But we found since by necessity we've had to do it that the Daily Telegraph, that we um, are charging and people are buying subscriptions. They are willing to pay for content. And that in a way is good because it means that instead of us chasing clickbait, which is just empty garbage that's just got a few sexy words in the headline, like Barnaby Joyce, um, and then the story's nothing, um, you actually have to give people content that they are willing to, new content, fresh information, credible facts, interestingly written, because they, they have to get their money's worth. Is there, Has there been any articles you've written 
that you regret that, you know, obviously went to print? Um, look, ages, ages and ages and ages ago, I wrote a really mean piece about a politician's son. And he was in the public eye and he was sort of being ridiculed and there was a silly photograph of him. Um, and I felt really mean afterwards. I guess I didn't have kids of my own then. I didn't really realise how hurtful it was to a parent to be kind of attacked by their children. So I, I just, you know, I always regret that, even though it was like 20-something years ago. Um, but And I always feel guilty whenever I see that particular politician. So, um, but nothing else. I think everything else has been pretty much fair game. Are there actually any articles that you've written that you're quite proud of? Oh, God, all of them. <laughs> um, have you, have, well, have you won any Walkleys? I haven't won any Walkleys, but then I haven't entered any Walkleys because uh, right. Walkleys yeah. is, is uh, a, um, one of those awards that you actually have to – people don't realise that you actually have to enter to win. Right, okay. Now, we've got a fair few of your articles sitting here in front of us and we won't read them all out. I won't do that to you. Um, but anyone who does want to read them – uh, anyone who does want to read some of the more spicier columns written by Miranda Devine can pay for the subscription, as we mentioned earlier, or go to a cafe and read the paper. <laughs> but I do have to say, looking through the Miranda, there is a running theme that suggests you might have been anti-gay marriage. Yes. 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 Miranda, can you tell us about some of the societal decay you've seen um, happen to society since gay marriage was legalised? and? Has the sky fallen in or does it look like it's about to fall in? Look, I mean, it's only been around for a little while. I don't know that you can say that the world's fallen in at all. Um, and uh, look, I just, my feeling and perhaps it's because I'm, you know, was brought up Catholic and I'm still a practising Catholic that I have this view. I'm not averse to the idea that, um, that you know, I'm not, maybe I'm not right, but I just think that marriage um, is, you know, was designed really in a very unromantic fashion to, um, for, for, to keep women and children safe and to keep men who aren't naturally uh, monogamous, you know, the caveman style man, um, to, to somehow uh, trap him into a situation where he will look after his wife and kids. That's what monogamous kind of families were all about. And, um, and it's, you know, for the safety of children, I think the breakdown of marriage over the last 40 years, which obviously has nothing to do with um, uh, same-sex marriage, has been disastrous. And, you know, it's not disastrous for, you know, middle-class people with the ability to, to rise, uh, you know, rise above their station, in, you know, their problems in life or broken marriages or so on. But the people who really are damaged are the people at the bottom. And you see... Uh, increasingly with, um, you know, an underclass uh, where the people who are, um, you know, where where this sort of role modelling, I guess, from the elites of society, the middle classes of not having stable marriages and not valuing um, family and being a parent and looking after your kids, you see that in welfare holes and Indigenous communities where the, the idea of family life is so degraded that it's just a joke and you know, a perfect example is up in Tennant Creek um, in February, you had a two-year-old little girl was raped and she was in hospital for ages and terribly damaged. And there were something like 60-something 60, 60 notifications to child welfare services about her family and yet she wasn't removed. And so... 
you know, in a long roundabout way, what I'm saying is that we've, I guess, marriage has already been so debased um, and so devalued and so far away from what it's really meant to be about um, that I just felt that we were just going even further in that direction with same-sex marriage. Now, you, 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 when you write, um, you know, as an opinion columnist, I guess at times, you come from a place of, you know, you know, an education, a storied career outside of writing. Um, do you feel there is a problem, and I'm not asking you to eat your own here, but with these uh, columnists who are coming up and they're a bit young, you know, and there's almost like the, these experiments of, uh, of newspapers, Caleb Bond, Daisy Cousins, do you feel like they might, they should step back a little bit, maybe go get a job in the mines or, you know, uh, get married and start doing... And experience life. Yeah. <laughs> well, probably, I mean, I, I have to admit that um, I'm probably partially to blame for Caleb Bond because um, I, uh, I um, put in a good word for him in the Adelaide Advertiser. But look, he he's a kind of remarkable kid who just from nowhere just was pestered me and others, you know, like Ben Fordham at 2GB so much that he got under our normal defences and, um, and uh, you know, you got to like him and he's just so enthusiastic. So, look, for his own sake, I think, and, and for all of these people's sake, um, I think it would be better for them to go out and experience life a bit more. And you can do that as a journalist. There's no better place. But to be out on the road, to do police reporting, to do political reporting, not just to be giving your um, opinion. I mean, it's it's interesting in Caleb because he was so young. He was 16 years old. And I thought that was uh, a good insight into his generation, although he's not really representative of most people his age. He has a fountain pen collection. Yeah, that's right. He's yeah. a fabulous kid. But, you know, he did have, uh, in those early days, he did have some really good insights into young kids. He's kind of a, a young fogey type of guy and, and a curiosity and fun. But I think the problem for Caleb um, will be when he's sort of in his mid to late 20s, when that novelty value is worn off. What is he going to give that's that's fresh and insightful? Well, he can always enter politics then, like uh, <laughs> he's made a uh, bloody... Uh, pawn. Pawn, yeah. They're essentially, you know, a generation apart. They're almost the same person. Adelaide as well. <laughs> well, that is something strange about Adelaide, but th- that is a problem. I mean, that the political staffers who just then go and p- become politicians who've never had any real life that is really a scourge and i think with journalism it it sort of sorts itself out because people won't read you unless you have uh bring something fresh but if you've become if you got pre-selected because you sucked up to the right people in adelaide um and then you you know you're in the senate we're stuck with you for eight years. Yeah, that is uh, that, that's another thing we want to ask. The, the, there is a detachment. There's a t- detachment with media as well. Many many argue there's a detachment with politics. Do you feel like that is uh, the problem? People either based in inner city Sydney or based in inner city Melbourne or based in Canberra, in both politics and media, just climbing the ranks from their mid twenties there until they've got a top job. That that seems to be um, where where a lot of people um, kind of point out. The detachment is bred. Did you do you have any feelings about that? Do you do you feel like it's it's very much alive in Australia? Uh, you know, the the concept of elites. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's partly you see that sort of disaffection with the political class and the feeling that they're really out of touch. You know, in their com cars, Canberra is particularly an unreal environment, um, and and um, you know, especially when economic times are tough. 
uh, people feel that their elected representatives and their media just don't know what their daily life is like. And, you know, I think that's something that particularly Malcolm Turnbull has to be careful of because he's, you know, the Point Piper guy and uh, the Harborside Mansion guy. And he, you know, he might try to um, be a man of the people, but he, you know, we had a Go West Sydney, a Project Sydney um, dinner uh, for the Daily Telegraph, which we do every year, and the Prime Minister spoke at it. And, look, he spoke about the western suburbs of Sydney, which is where elections are won or lost for the Liberal Party in those sort of Howard Battler seats. Uh, He spoke about it with affection, but from a distance, you know, as someone driving past on the M7. Well... With that, we might uh, we might let you go. We know you've got, we've got something to be. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. That was um, that was a good night to finish on. Uh, Miranda Devine. We'll um, next time we'll see you'll be in the uh, in the paper. Great pleasure to be with you both. Thank you. Bye. So there you have it. Climate change is real, but not yet real enough to worry about. And gay marriage is responsible for child abuse in remote Indigenous communities. Yes, it's good to have a bit of variety uh, on on the show from time to time, isn't it, Clancy? Most certainly, Errol. Uh, it's good to have a bit of balance, given the fact that we've had Dina Tali and Anna Lee on the show this year, not to mention that obnoxiously left-wing Hamish Blake. Well, I suppose we did have the leader of the coalition government launch our latest book uh, in Canberra last year, so I guess it all evens out. I suppose. Anyway, we better get to the mailbag and read one of the letters to the editor this week before we run out of time. Of course, I thought we were forgetting something. Uh, I was already packing up my journal notes. What have we got this week? This week we have a letter from a bloke named Mull in the New South Wales Northern Tablelands. Hello, Mull. He writes, Dear Edotters, I was in Brisbane the other night for a para game and I noticed that those mounted police horses are allowed to shit themselves in the street and no one cleans it up! Exclamation mark. Exclamation mark. Three exclamation marks. I'm a man of the land myself and understand that livestock can't control themselves like I can. But still, if I shat myself out the front of Lang Park, I'd get cuffed, no questions asked. Seems like one set of rules for people like me and another set of rules for anyone wearing blue. Well, that's a very interesting point you make, Mull. My word of advice to you would be if you do need to take a shit um, out the front of Lang Park. I would suggest going down the road a bit, going down to where uh, it connects there onto Milton Road and just finding a nice spot there in the bushes to empty yourself. Uh, but saving from that, it's it's only a hop, skip and a jump to Caxton Street from there. So I'd, I'd say you, you, you could probably try and hold on. But to answer your question, I think uh, we'd be asking a bit too much uh, for the police horses to uh, hold themselves in, but I have seen in my in my travels to other parts of the world that police horses do have a a poo bag uh, attached under their tails uh, to catch any excrement that falls out of them um, in the line of duty. So maybe that's something we need to bring up with the Queensland Police. Thank you, Mal. Yes, it's an interesting thing you um, seem to be getting worked up about there, Mal. Uh, I would have to say uh, it seems that. You don't get handcuffed if you're a executive of a um, you know large organisation, particularly a financial one. If you want to take a shit in the streets of Brisbane, it's happened before. Um, you know you might get plastered across social media and shamed for it, but I don't think you get cuffed. Maybe someone like you, maybe someone like us, if we were to do the same thing, you know we'd be uh, we'd be lower than a horse. Who knows? But we know the poo jogger seems to have gotten away with it. Um, he did have to resign though. Uh, interesting thing to be worked up about, uh, but it is a valid point because. As we know, you walk through the middle of 
the main street of Brisbane and your dog takes a shit and you walk past that, you could be on the hook for $400. So, you know, it is, it is interesting as to who can shit, where and when. Um, again, uh, interesting interesting point you've made and I would be interested to see how you vote in the upcoming federal election. Yes, and as I always say, the golden rule of, uh, of breaking the law is to not get caught. So um, if you do like to take a shit in public... Mole, try not to get caught. And with that, I reckon uh, we're all out of time here. Thanks, Mole. Uh, interesting note to finish on. Uh, everyone else, you've been listening to the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM, live from Koala Sofa Studios in downtown Batuta. Until next time, Clancy, you have a good one. You too, Errol. Thank you, listeners. You be kind to each other. Right now at Honda, find your kind of value with a low finance rate offer on selected Civic hatch and sedan models. There's never been a better time to get into a Civic. So talk to your local dealer and let's help you into a Honda today. T's and C's apply. Ends August 31st. See website for details.